Today are the midterm elections. We talk about some of the biggest issues that socialists should be paying attention to. We focus in particular on the negation of democracy, the attacks on voting rights, voter suppression, and contextualize today's election in the broader context of an attack on basic democratic rights. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, I'm talking with Esther Abaram. Esther is a longtime journalist. She is a producer and host of the show On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital which comes out every week on Fridays. You can check it out at onthegroundshow.org. And also you can listen to it at more than two dozen Pacifica radio stations nationwide. Esther, welcome. Thanks for having me, Brian. Glad to be back. Thank you, thank you. Well, Esther, the day today, the news today will undoubtedly be dominated by the midterm elections. Just for our audience, later tonight, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. If you go to Breakthrough News YouTube channel, you can watch Eugene Perrier and Sam Sachs, who will do live coverage as returns come in all evening. So be sure to check that out. Breakthrough News YouTube channel tonight, starting at 7 p.m. Esther, we are undoubtedly going to talk about the impact of the election outcome after today, tomorrow, and in the coming days, coming weeks. It's a potentially significant election. Of course, midterm elections are where members of Congress are elected every two years. All members of Congress, all 435 members are elected every two years. And then in two years will be the presidential election. Senators run every six years, but every two years, one-third of the Senate is up for election. So with that said, we also notice and want to pay particular attention to the fact that there are a number of referendum, popular vote ballot measures in different states. Some of them are very significant because they relate to abortion after the unelected Supreme Court extinguished abortion rights when it overturned the Roe v. Wade decision with the Dobbs decision. We'll talk a little bit about that. But the purpose of our discussion today, Esther, really is to sort of frame some of the big issues. Again, we can't talk about everything we don't need to. We can do that after the elections. But I want to help our audience this morning and this afternoon as they're paying attention to the elections, which if they're watching the media, or talking to their coworkers or fellow students or family members, they undoubtedly will be thinking about or talking about the midterm elections. I wanted to highlight some of the big issues that we should be paying attention to. Let's get started with one of the biggest 
underreported stories of the election, which is voter suppression. Let's get started there. Right. So for me, this is a major, almost the major issue of this midterm election, because after the 2020 election, there were various voter suppression bills, proposals put forth in states around the country. And this election is the first big election where all of those pieces of legislation will actually be put into effect. And in addition to the legislation, you still have the rise of the threat of political violence that occurred after 2020 in the form of, for example, in Arizona, armed people showing up at ballot drop boxes, election workers all over the country being threatened. I saw today that Arizona voter election workers were threatened with assassination these types of threats being received either digitally in letters to election workers, the so-called poll watchers in North Carolina demanding to watch people vote. And we'll probably get to it when we talk about ballot initiatives, but all types of initiatives being passed to change the way that people can vote, that if people can vote, the way that they can vote. And so these types of voter suppression tactics are happening all over the country. Because there is a Senate race in Georgia, I think it's especially important to look at Georgia. The laws passed in Georgia require that only certain type of government identification will be required or be used to vote. It takes away a lot of the early voting that used to happen in terms of souls to the polls and and the ways that the Black community organized itself to vote. And it also remember, it will give the state legislature the ability to kind of nullify the work of county election boards and election workers. And basically, it's almost like a preview of what the Moore v. Harper legislation would do, right? And so it will allow the state legislature to fire or discount the work of these very local community election workers. We also know that, you know, you can't give out food or water to people standing in these long lines. And in Georgia, people in the Black community have typically hours to wait some time to vote, whereas in wealthier white communities, there is no such wait. But the thing that people are talking about a lot is this, the part of the law that gives any person in Georgia the right to challenge the vote of another person. So the nation pointed out that tens of thousands of people have had their vote and their right to vote challenged. And actually, this grew from an investigation by Greg Palast, where he showed how this law was being abused by these kind of right-wing activists. And there was one woman who had challenged more than 30,000 people, their right to vote. She'd never met the person. She'd never seen anything about them as an individual, but she challenged them. And this these challenges were mainly used against Democratic and disproportionately against Black voters. So 
that is something that is having an impact, intimidating voters and discouraging voters. The last count I saw is that, you know, 3,000 of these challenges were upheld, though, you know, many of them were dismissed. And so this is having an impact on the ability of groups like Black Voters Matter. Instead of getting people out to the polls and getting out the vote, they're having to defend people and having to defend their right to register defend their right to even go vote. So this is having a big impact on Georgia, where we know that Senator Raphael Warnock is up against former football player Herschel Walker. And when you look at both candidates, it's obvious that Herschel Walker is obviously, you know, sometimes just can't even speak. He can't even articulate what he's saying. But yet there's this big push by the far right in Georgia or the right wing in Georgia Republicans to elect him. So that's why it's especially important to look at voter suppression in Georgia as we look at that race. Esther, the voter suppression issue has always been, and I think this is really important for all of us to keep in mind, voter suppression or the negation of the vote of working class people and especially people in the black community has always been sort of fundamental to this particular political system in the United States, which is really significant because, you know, the U.S. tells itself and it tells the rest of the world that it's a city, a shining city on a hill. It's like an example for all others to follow. And yet, when you think about the U.S. Constitution that was adopted in 1787, the word democracy never appears in the U.S. Constitution. Voting is talked about in a very meager way. In fact, there was no popular vote in many of the states where the first presidential election took place. George Washington was elected unanimously. About 1.7% of the existing population in what were then the 15 states actually voted, actually cast a ballot. The vote was reserved for white men with property. In fact, even white men without property didn't, for the most part, did not get the right to vote until 1828. And that was, again, that's almost 40 years after the adoption of the U.S. Constitution. And then there was, of course, significant in in many places, the majority of the population in southern states who were enslaved people obviously were not, quote, citizens. They did not have the right to vote. They were, in fact, quote, property, close quote, Again, the negation of the vast majority's right to vote has always been essential. Women did not win the right to vote until 1920. It was only in 1964 that the U.S. Constitution was amended with the 24th Amendment that prohibited the use of poll taxes, meaning you would have to pay money in order to vote. Poll taxes were used to disenfranchise Black people in particular in the South. But the U.S. Supreme Court only in 1966 ruled that poll taxes were illegal in the state elections, meaning not so long ago. I mean, in my lifetime, Esther, and I believe in your lifetime, poll taxes, meaning some people were forced to pay money in order to vote. All of this is part of a scheme, which is so ironic because the scheme was to deny the right to vote to deny basic core principles of democracy to be accessed by big parts of the population, 
even while the U.S. created this mythology about how it was such a wonderful democracy. Now we look at voter purges, voter ID laws, new state voting laws, and there's scores of them. It may be hundreds of them, all designed to take back the right to vote for parts of the population who won the right to vote only in the 1960s and the 1970s. And as a consequence of a near revolutionary struggle in the United States, that bigger parts of the population were allowed to vote. And now the big struggle is to take that vote away. Again, it's such a weird counterdistinction. The U.S. telling the world how wonderful it is as a democracy and then doing everything in its power in different places and even on the federal level to prevent people, some people, from voting. I was just looking at just trying to check the fact in terms of Reverend Raphael Warnock being elected in that special election in 2020. And that's why he has to go for his full election in this midterm election. And when he was elected, he was the first black senator, obviously, to represent Georgia, which has such a large black population. And he was the first Black senator to be elected from the South since Reconstruction. And that just goes hand in hand with what you were saying, because during that brief period when there was protection for the recently emancipated population, the recently freed African population in the South, Black people at that time, Black men were able to vote. And so Mississippi actually had two Black senators. But after that era ended and you had the imposition of this brutal apartheid system of Jim Crow, you know, Black people were not able to vote anymore until what you just mentioned, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And so as a result of that and the continued vigilance and the continued fight for the vote, you know, even after all these Supreme Court decisions to take away the vote, to chip away at that right, Black people were able to elect Warnock two years ago. So yes, this is it's a continuation of that same fight and it's a continuation of the efforts post-2020 to take us further back and to not only eliminate the right of Black people to vote, but any part of that coalition that came together to try to defeat Trump and that far-right agenda from 2020. Right. One of the cases that we've been talking about, Esther, of course, is the Moore v. Harper case. It's coming up before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agreed to take the case. Obviously, it wants to speak to it. But it's about a case in North Carolina where the state Supreme Court in North Carolina ruled that the gerrymandering scheme of the Republican state legislature was illegal because it was obviously biased in favor of Republicans. It was discriminatory against black people, et cetera. But when you look at how Congress is formed, and this is really, really important, in addition to voter suppression, when you look at how Congress is formed, in North Carolina, for instance, the majority of voters in the last election voted for the Democrats, and yet eight of the 14 members of the congressional delegation from North Carolina are Republicans. And that's because of the way the congressional boundaries have been drawn such that it makes it favorable to the Republicans, unfavorable to the Democrats, and very unfavorable, generally speaking, to black people. Now, the Democrats, when they have control of the state legislature, 
They also gerrymander. They also create congressional districts that are going to be favorable for Democrats. But in big parts of the country, the gerrymandering is specifically designed to target the black vote. There's a case coming up before the Supreme Court regarding Alabama gerrymandering. I think 30% of the population in Alabama is African-American. Alabama has seven congressional seats, but only one black person is in Congress from the state of Alabama because of gerrymandering. So you have a system whereby when black people won the right to vote in the 13th Amendment after the end of slavery and then had it taken away with the defeat of Reconstruction and then legally had it returned 100 years later with passage of the 1965 Civil Rights Act, that did not stop this struggle because the forces of racism work day and night basically to suppress that vote. Now, in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the states that had an obvious pattern of racist discrimination in voting had to get what was called pre-clearance from the Justice Department if the state legislatures were going to amend voting or voting requirements or other parts of the voting system that would potentially impact or have a negative impact on black people. They had to get pre-clearance. So from 1965, all the way up to 2013, these states like Georgia, like Alabama, like Mississippi, like Florida, like North Carolina, South Carolina, et cetera, had to get preclearance before they could change their voting laws. The Supreme Court in 2013 in the Shelby decision said preclearance is no longer necessary, meaning that these states could start to do whatever it is that they want to do or wanted to do. And that's when you see this proliferation of all of these laws and requirements that are designed to do nothing other than stop black people and other people who the Republicans believe won't vote for the Republicans, prevent them from voting. Exactly. And those laws and all those restrictions put into place are still having an impact today. And what we have since 2020 is a whole new raft of laws that further, you know, disenfranchise voters. Esther, when the Civil War came to an end, there were a series of amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment. These were considered the Civil War Amendments. So slavery is abolished, and formerly enslaved people are granted citizenship. Anyone born in the United States is granted citizenship. And also for black males at that time, the right finally to vote, not for women, but at least for formerly enslaved black men. But the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, and then it was followed up with the 14th and 15th Amendment, which purportedly would enfranchise, give the right to vote to formerly enslaved people. The 13th Amendment reads, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Now, the reason that became so important is that it legalized slavery if you were convicted of a crime, if you were convicted in particular in most states of a felony. In the state of Florida, by 1868 and after the passage of this amendment, the elites, the racist 
elites in Florida realized that the white vote was now the minority vote in the state of Florida. So taking advantage of the language of the 13th Amendment, which allowed slavery for people convicted of felonies, and then adding onto it the disenfranchisement of those convicted of crimes, there was for the next hundred years this overcharging and frame-up charging of individuals from the African-American community, putting felonies on them, and then people either pled out because they couldn't afford a lawyer, couldn't afford to really defend themselves, or pled out because they would have a reduced sentence, but they pled guilty for the most part. These did not result in trials, or if they were trials, they were trials before basically all white juries that just convicted black people routinely and almost always when brought before the court. So you have in the state of Florida, for instance, a law a system plus laws designed to really do what the former slave-owning ruling class elites wanted to do, which was to make sure that the black vote wasn't a majority, that the white vote was, again, a very, very comfortable majority. Anyway, that struggle and the struggle of the right of, quote, felons to vote close quote, is still an issue in Florida, even though there was a referendum passed that made it illegal to deprive people convicted of felonies of the right to vote. Anyway, again, this has gone on and on and on. The point that I'm making, Esther, is that this is sort of a a red thread that runs through the entire system of democracy in the United States, voter suppression. Right. And when you look at the ongoing efforts in Florida, going so far as the current governor, Ron DeSantis, you know, staging these, I think they're just kind of publicity stunts where he has formerly incarcerated people arrested after they've voted. And, you know, when the state has actually sent these people information about voting and basically encouraged them to vote, and then the state kind of rounds them up as kind of like this photo op, like, you know, a perp walk, you know, to, you know, look at this criminal trying to vote. And it's cynical, but it's also dangerous. And it's highly dangerous at this moment where the right wing is using certain buttons around black people being criminal and and being responsible for crime to include voting in that whole narrative about black criminals. I'm watching that because I think it's a new buzzword. It's a new trigger that they're trying to use in terms of painting black people in general as criminal and being responsible for crime, even if it's just to vote. When you listen to or read Donald Trump's speeches in Pennsylvania and Ohio in the recent days, One thing that really comes through is just what you're saying, Esther, is that it's this drumbeat, this redundancy, this allegation over and over and over again that white people in particular are being, and that's the implication in all of these sort of speeches by Trump, all of these dog whistle speeches, that immigrants are terrorizing, quote, Americans, that black people are terrorizing white people that there is this sort of wave of lawlessness that is all over the country. And it conflates also with this weird anti-communism where Trump in his Ohio rally last week said to the crowd, the cheering crowd, we have to crush the communists at the polls on election day, meaning today. We have to crush the communists after doing this rampage against immigrant crime 
and the crime of black people. And then he says, Trump says, the election was rigged, meaning 2020. The election was rigged and stolen, and now our country is being destroyed, meaning the implication for all of those in attendance is our country is the country of white people. It's being destroyed by the crimes committed by this wave of immigrant sort of terrorism and crime from black communities. When you put it all together, the appeal is sort of straight out fascistic kinds Mm -hmm. of rhetoric used during the Nazi campaign against East Europeans and against Jews in 1929, 1930, 1931. I mean, there's no mistaking what this campaign is really all about. Something you said reminded me of your conversation with Stephen Donziger last week and his comment of how the Nazis always made sure there was this legal imprimatur put on everything, this kind of legal structure put on their legal and barbaric actions so that if they stole or robbed a Jewish family of their property or their business, they made sure there was this like little contract to show that they paid a dollar for it when it was maybe worth like, you know, $50,000. And so when you see the Republican Republicans all around the country trying to have their people elected into positions where they will control the elections. This is kind of like with the Georgia law, trying to put more v. Harper into place without it necessarily even being passed by the Supreme Court so that these people will, on a local, regional, or state level, be able to overturn elections, discount votes, say certain voters and certain votes don't matter, don't count. And so that is the extension of the same things that you're talking about in terms of Trump being able to stand up at his rally and say, you know, this election was illegal or I was robbed and these people are harming white people. They actually want to be put into the positions where they can make all of those illegal claims legal, you know, make all those illegal actions legal because they will be in a position to give it the imprimatur of legality. Right. You know, Esther, I'm, I've been reading a book. I finished finally. I should have been able to finish it quickly. It's a pretty short book, and I have recommended it to anybody who's in earshot. The name of the book is Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law. It's by a Yale law professor, James Q. Whitman. In the book, which he documents how the Nazis were, in fact, fascinated with and modeled all of the this very specifically legal doctrine that the Nazis adopted. And again, this fascination or commitment to, quote, legality, close quote, that made the Nazis intrigued about American race law because it was so, quote, innovative. It was so different from anywhere else in the world. I'll read a paragraph to you from the book. American immigration law featured especially frequently in the Nazi legal literature, perhaps because Hitler himself had praised it so demonstratively. But Nazi authors did not neglect American citizenship law with its creation of de jure and de facto forms of second-class citizenship for blacks, Puerto Ricans, Filipinos, Chinese, and Native Americans. And then the author goes on, in fact, The topic of black disenfranchisement in the United States seemed of sufficient political interest that it made its way into mass circulatory party publications, party meaning Nazi party. 
For example, the cheap party magazine intended for a broad Nazi readership, S.A. Fuhrer, reported on the meaninglessness of black citizenship in the United States. And then the article goes on to show how the Nazis were not only fascinated with and modeled Nazi race law, including the very notorious, infamous Nuremberg laws, but they were trying to create systems of second-class citizenship. This is in the early days before the absolute genocide of Jews and Roma people took place a few years later. This is 1932, 33, 34. They're fascinated with American law because American law, in a way, was required at a certain point to grant citizenship to, quote, black people. And well, in fact, Chinese people were not citizens, couldn't become citizens until the 1940s. Hmm. But, you know, it was like a big thing for the Nazis. And at the same time, I mean, even the author, James Whitman, who wrote the book, is kind of writing it apologetically because he knows that this will sound discordant in the ears of people who grew up learning that America was a great democracy, that Hitler and the Nazis actually premised their race laws on the American model, including the issue of disenfranchisement, because they, of course, wanted to do it to Jews and to Roma people and to others. I think it's important that... Even though this topic is election and people are looking at the election right now, that all these other issues that have come up in terms of critical race theory, what our children can learn in school, what college professors can teach, what books will be banned, that all of this is coming to a head right now. And it all is intermingling as just the issue of the day that, you know, After so many centuries, race is the central issue in this election, whether it's federal, national, state, or local elections, all these issues are still revolving around race and whether Black people in this country will be have their rights as citizens respected, whether they will be curtailed, whether they will be outright banned, and whether the Republicans and from the, whether they consider themselves moderate to the far right will be able to build their power and seize power and hold power precisely by using this negation of Black rights. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And again, for our audience, we'll talk about the specific races and coming shows. And we're encouraging everyone to to go tonight to Breakthrough News and watch Eugene Perrier and Sam Sachs in their live coverage of the election results as they come in. But I'm, I think it's very important, Esther, that we're focusing this show on the day that people go to the polls with the issue that's not discussed in the media or discussed in a way that really minimizes. People don't really get how big of an issue this is. And again, I'm looking at the ways in which specific voting rights are targeted, how gerrymandering works, and also how the propaganda of the right wing is employed so that millions of people who are voting for right-wing candidates have actually been convinced that the only reason right-wing candidates lose is because the election is rigged or because of voter fraud. And, you know, extensive research reveals that voter fraud in the United States, I don't mean voting fraud whereby like independent socialist candidates can never make it into a debate, which I think is a form of election fraud in a way that candidates who are on the ballot can't even be seen or heard on TV. 
I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the issue of people cheating at the polls. Extensive research reveals that this kind of fraud is extremely rare, yet the repetition of the argument is made so many times that the false allegations of fraud actually end up making it harder for you know millions of people to vote. And then the photo IDs, voter ID laws, and also, Esther, the purging of voter rolls in the name of cleaning up election voting rolls, people are terminated and they're terminated frequently by third parties who are hired as contractors by state legislatures. And then people have to prove, even if they've been wrongly purged from the voting rolls, when they come to vote, they have to prove that they are, in fact, you know, legally registered and eligible to vote. In the case of the 2000 Gore-Bush federal election, the officials in Florida, going back to Florida once again, they deliberately purged 50,000 people from the rolls, disproportionately purging black voters from the rolls. And then the voter had to prove that they shouldn't have been purged. And many times people were only finding out about the fact that they had been purged at the very last minute. This was deliberately done to strengthen the position of George W. Bush in the state of Florida and the position of Republican candidates. Again, voter purges another tool. And then, Esther, you know, the Democrats, who are obviously fully aware of these right wing racist schemes and schemes that basically hurt the Democrats because more black people are going to vote for Democrats than for the Republicans and more low-income voters are going to vote for the Democrats than the Republicans. And yet this purging of the roles or voter suppression, it's talked about a little bit by the Democrats, but they've done almost nothing in defense of voting rights. And obviously, they had control of the Senate, the control of the House, the presidency. This was all since January 2021. And they did nothing to defend voting rights. This was one of the more painful episodes of the Biden administration so far. Well, we know about Build Back Better, and I guess we'll talk about that. And actually, this measure to protect voting rights, to institutionalize it as more of a right that can't be taken away from people, that can't be marginalized at the state level, that was actually part of that massive Build Back Better package. You know, and one of the formations of it, like that whole package changed so many times. But I know that the Reverend William Barber with the Poor People's Campaign was very much interested in kind of marrying these rights around economic rights, rights to strengthen the working class, the middle class, and also include voting rights as part of that. So, yes, the fact that they could not pass that to protect their own base, (laughs) was incredible. And there were a lot of different parts to that. Remember, at one point, they needed to make these moves around voting rights before the census was finished and before the census data came in, because with that data, states were quick and they were prepared. These Republican-controlled legislatures were prepared to go into effect and institute these new gerrymandering compositions around the country. (laughs) So, yeah, on many levels, in terms of the actual voting rights bills, there were two, the For the People Act, and there was one that was stronger than that, I believe, and then also not integrating that into their overall structure 
of Build Back Better was a major defeat. It was a major defeat for their own base. And cobbled with that was, you know, immigration reform that would have helped more people in the Latinx community. Yeah, that was one of the more disappointing chapters in this administration so far. And you could see it just really go downhill from there. Yeah. I want to encourage people listening to this show to go to liberationnews.org. There's a statement there issued by the Party for Socialism and Liberation. The title is, the right wing's program is deeply unpopular, so why are the elections so close? And I think it's really an important sort of way of assessing and analyzing the situation. We have gerrymandering, we have voter suppression, we have the failure of the Democrats to do you know, basic things to defend voting rights. But then, Esther, there's the other issue, which is that in the middle of very high inflation, in the middle of what we've talked about is a wave of evictions that are spreading across the country, and it's really spreading now. We had a show called The Rent Revolution taking off on a New York Times article from a couple of weeks ago. They're speculating in the New York Times that there will be a rent revolution because so many people are being driven out of their homes because of inflation in housing, the inflation of housing prices. And while this is happening to working class people, the Democrats, the main sort of focus of the Democrats is to have a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine to send $66 billion in weapons to Ukraine, advanced weapons, because the U.S. is insisting, both the Republicans and the Democrats, but now we have a Democratic government, the Biden administration, insisting that NATO must expand right up to Russia's borders. Russia has made it clear for some time that that's not acceptable. That poses a security threat to Russia that's unacceptable. So they deliberately knew that this sort of policy of NATO expansion would create a crisis with Russia. It did, in fact, create a crisis. It led to a military confrontation in Ukraine, a completely avoidable confrontation. So you have the U.S. government, the Biden administration, committed to fighting to send money, more money, more money for war in Ukraine against Russia, while people are suffering because of inflation at the gas pump, in the supermarket, paying for food, and of course, in the terms of not being able to afford housing. So in addition to failure on the front to defend voting rights or expose voter suppression, the social policies and the social priorities of the Biden administration are also losing a big part of the population. So I want to read a paragraph, Esther, and then get your comments. And this is from that PSL article at Liberation News. In his first year in office, Biden pushed a reform program called Build Back Better. This would have made community college free, established guaranteed parental leave and sick leave, sent monthly payments to working class parents through a tax credit, created universal pre-K and child care subsidies, initiated a major program to slash the use of fossil fuels in electricity production, funded desperately needed improvements to public housing and more. Biden also supported the passage of the PRO Act to make it easier to form a union for workers, the Equality Act to protect the rights of LGBTQ people, and police reform legislation to address racist brutality. Had these widely popular measures become a reality, 
the Democrats would be in a position to sweep the midterm elections. Anyway, the article goes on, but that's correct, Esther. I mean, Mm -hmm. the Democrats had the House, they had the Senate, they had the White House, they had a program. It was basically Bernie's program. When Biden was elected, he moved slightly to the left, adopted this reform program that if enacted, this election would not have even been close. But this too is what the Democrats refused to do. Well, I just want to add to what you just said in terms of adopting Bernie's program, that he adopted it to even be elected because he was not the first choice of so many of the young voters, black voters, and to even eke out the win that he did. And we know he got 7 million more votes. And those 7 million more votes were from people who said, okay, he says he's going to do these things. So the fact that he didn't do them or he did them kind of in a half-assed way, then we see where we are right now. But I, I wanted to say that I was struck by a piece that the economist Jeffrey Sachs wrote. And, you know, he's a pretty mainstream guy. He has served in administrations and he's a professor at Columbia University, professor and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. And he wrote a piece October 30th saying that Joe Biden's policy in Ukraine, his foreign policy is undermining the chances of Democrats, congressional Democrats in this election today, that precisely what you're saying, that this policy of putting tens of billions of dollars at this point, I don't even know the total because there's humanitarian, military, you know, indirect aid or whatever, but it's tens of millions of dollars. I think well over $60 billion at this point, putting this money into Ukraine and not investing it here at home is undermining the chances of Democrats. People aren't stupid. People are living their real lives out here dealing with rent, gas, food prices that are through the roof. And he's giving Republicans this talking point that they should not have so that Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, the right wing leader in the House, can say a few weeks ago that if they win, they're not likely to fund or to continue to fund Ukraine and the Ukrainian war against the Russians. Right. And we know that this is a political statement, that they are just as pro-war as the Democrats. But the Democrats have actually given Republicans this talking point that, hey, we're going to look out for you, America first. Far-right people like Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, you know, building this into the America first argument, which we know is very pernicious. And these same people want to go after China instead. But for now, you know, they're able to use this talking point against the Democrats. So, yes, I mean, when you have mainstream people like Jeffrey Sachs coming out and saying, yeah, you know, this is a big blunder, not only in terms of the disaster that this war is, in terms of the environment, in terms of the lives lost, the violence, now the threat of nuclear war, but this is taking billions of dollars from taxpayers and these funds are needed right here at home. So yes, that is kind of like the terrible cherry on top of all these other debacles by the Democrats in terms of shooting themselves in their own foot economically, you know, with their voter base, with their program that they fail to implement properly. So yes, this is a total cluster for the Democrats and we'll see what happens today. Thank you so much. Again, we'll talk about the outcome of the election after the election, but I I think it's extremely important that we're able to frame 
the midterm elections in a way that highlights the underreported story here, which is voter suppression and racism in the obvious failure of the Democratic Party, which wants to win the votes of the black community and immigrant families and the working class, the obvious failure of the Democrats to do what's needed to succeed at that. And again, it's not simply a failure because they're bad tacticians. They are a ruling class party. They are tied to Wall Street. They are tied to the military industrial complex. And so as a consequence on these fundamental and obvious issues that go to the heart of what a real or a true democracy would be, the Democrats are unable to deliver. Anyway, we'll take a a closer look at the election outcome in the coming days. Again, I want to encourage everyone to join Breakthrough News tonight at 7 p.m., tonight being election night, and you can listen to Eugene Perrier and Sam Sachs talk about the election, what it means as the election returns are coming in. That show will begin on YouTube at 7 p.m. today, Tuesday, Election Day. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.